granddaughter Ellie had her third birthday last week. Um, David and I have what I could perhaps best describe as a, a duty and a joy of looking after her once a week. It's really great to be able to do it, even though it does actually leave us pretty exhausted by the end of the day. She's a, <laughs> she's a lively little thing, and she wants Nana to come on all the slides and all the swings with her. Um, she plays hide-and-seek incessantly, and she chases the pigeons all through the park. But Ellie is also a delightfully cuddly, snuggly child, and there are times particularly towards the end of the day, when all she wants to do is to climb up on my lap and snuggle up there. Often to listen to a story, but sometimes just to snuggle up to me and have a cuddle. And those are really precious times. They're precious times to just be still together and to feel that mutual love between us. And I was reminded of those moments and the joy that they give me when I read Psalm 131. Now, there are a number of references in the Bible where God is described in feminine terms, actually a lot more than you would perhaps realize if you start to look, look for them. But this psalm is probably one of the best known of them. And I'd like today to explore some of the lovely imagery in Psalm 131. I hope by the end of that to convince you how valuable it is, particularly in our ever busier world, simply to come and to be still and quiet before God. But turning to our reading, I wonder if you've ever um, thought about what the significance of a weaned child is in this psalm, as opposed to any old child. In the days when the psalmist was writing, breastfeeding was the only way of nourishing a baby. And mothers typically breastfed their children until they were between the ages of two and four. So here we have a picture of a young child one who is not any longer totally reliant upon his mother for food and sustenance, one who has a measure of independence, who's walking and talking, beginning to form other relationships, rather like my granddaughter Ellie, but who nevertheless chooses to come and snuggle up with his mother. And I think that analogy is really spot on for us and God. He gave us free will to go our own way. We're not forced to come to him for our own survival. But like that weaned child, we can choose to. As Patrick said in his sermon last week, prayer is born and expressed in love. And the wellspring of prayer comes from our identity in Christ as children of our Heavenly Father in a loving relationship. We are, effectively, that weaned child. 
However, I think many of us spend much of our lives, both with an overflated sense of our own importance, um, downside of that is that we tend to feel the weight of our work, that, that the weight of the world can rest on our own shoulders. And the contrast of this psalm is so refreshing to see the trust that a small child has in its parents. To a child, parents are all-knowing and able to sort everything. Uh, those of you who are parents know that this stage doesn't actually last for very long. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, when I was 16, I thought my parents knew nothing. When I was 21, I was shocked to find out how much they picked up over the last five years. <laughs> But the opening words of the psalm, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. As the psalmist approaches God, he gains a different perspective. He recognizes that before God, he's like a child in the care of a parent. And that recognition releases him from the worry and, and anxiety of the affairs of the world. Releases him simply to rest in God's arms. You're probably familiar with the serenity prayer written by, in the 19th century by the American theologian Reinhold Nieberg. God, give me serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. If we take time to pause and rest in God's presence, we gain a better perspective on our own lives. As Pete Gregg said in that excellent book that um, has been uh, recommended to us by Annalisa earlier on in the service. We put down our prayer request list and we surrender our own personal agendas. We stop talking at God and instead focus on the wonder of who he actually is. Our self-importance and our egocentricity take a back seat. With that, we can better accept those things that it's not actually up to us to try to change. However, in our activist world, pausing to be still and quiet with God can actually feel quite alien. It can seem as though we're not doing anything, that we're merely wasting time. What does wasting time with God achieve? Does it actually achieve anything? Well, I think actually the achievement is probably the wrong way of thinking about it. But there are certainly some benefits by being still and quiet with God, which I want to elaborate on in a minute. But before I do that, have you ever thought how much it delights God's heart when we come to him. As I said at the beginning, prayer is born and expressed in love, and love's a 
two-way thing. One of the reasons that I treasure the times of having a cuddle with my granddaughter is the delight that I feel that she actually wants to spend some time with me. How much more must it delight God's heart when we choose to spend time with him? But to return to the benefits of pausing to be still and quiet with God, as I said before, love is a two-way thing. And first and foremost, coming in stillness and quiet to focus on the wonder of God and his love for us, that rekindles our love and the sense of joy and peace that goes with it. But more than that, in our activist world, I think we sometimes treat ourselves rather like we treat our laptops or our PCs. We turn them on in the morning, we then expect them to carry on working away right until the end of the day without any pause or break, and then we turn them off and they sleep at night. But we're not computers. We're creatures of rhythm. God made us that way, and he ordered his world that way. He's given us day and night, working days, Sabbath rest days, and the rhythm of the different seasons and the particular foods and activities that go with them. But the way that our society is ordered today, even those basic life rhythms have got distorted or blurred. In our 24-hour society, we don't always even get the chance to sleep at night if we're a shift worker. Ignoring those rhythms has a downside for all of us, physically, mentally, spiritually. I used to do research work on shift workers and the harm that can happen to people's health when our natural body rhythms are disrupted. Night shift workers have a one and a half, are one and a half times more likely to have heart attacks than comparable day workers. Take just one instance. You know, we can eat strawberries in January and parsnips in June, but it has a downside to society in terms of food miles. I'd like you to listen to some words of Jesus. They are taken from a couple of verses in Matthew's Gospel that will probably be familiar to many of you. Words that begin, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But today, I'd like you to hear them from a translation by Eugene Peterson, the message, because I think they come over with a particular freshness and power. So listen to these words of Jesus. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Come to me and learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Ignoring those rhythms has a downside both for us as individuals and for society. But the upside is that by discovering God's unforced rhythms of grace, by being still and quiet with him, we can indeed, as Jesus is recorded as saying in Matthew, get real rest and learn to live freely and lightly. Some of you here came with uh, Mike Hyle, Janet and I up to Northumbria a couple of years ago on the Northern Saints pilgrimage. I still have very happy memories of paddling across the mud and sand on the pilgrimage crossing to Holy Island and slipping over and falling in, into the mud. But those sixth century Celtic saints and monks, Aidan, Cuthbert, Columba, etc., they were great pioneers and missionaries. They were doers. They were God's instrument by which Christianity was established and spread in the north of England and in Scotland at that time. But they recognized that the cell and the coracle were two distinct and necessary parts to their life. The cell, a small room or cave away from people, was their place for solitude and stillness before God, their place for rest and reflection. They understood that these times were necessary to deepen their relationship with God, to renew and to replenish. The coracle was a small leather boat that they would use in order to sail to their next, next mission, the sea being an established highway at that time. They trusted that God would lead them in that coracle to what came next. And they understood that a full life was to be found in a rhythm of rest and adventure. They understood Jesus' unforced rhythms of grace. I would once again like to put in a plug for Greg, uh, Pete Gregg's book, How to Pray, um, particularly his chapter three, How to Be Still Before God, because it gives a wealth of practical advice on different ways of stilling ourselves before God, ways that suit a variety of different personality types and life circumstances. Because today, I don't want to get into the detail of the how-tos. Instead, I hope that I've convinced you of the value of pausing to be still with God. And I want you to experience just a taster of coming before him in stillness and prayer.